I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. And welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Wow, it's been a year, hasn't it? You mean Harry's first year at Hogwarts? No, I mean the absolute hellscape that's been the year 2020 CE up to and including the month of November when we're trying to pretend we can focus on this podcast. But (laughs) you know what? Winter is the season of death and decay and (laughs) letting go. So let's talk about what we're excited to let go of from 2020. What a great idea, Hannah. Oh, I am ready to let go of being a student. Yay! (laughs) Yay! And constantly feeling like I need to couch all of my good ideas in something someone smarter than me wrote and published one time. Oh, oh, what a blessing. You (laughs) never have to prove to somebody that you deserve to have a PhD again because you have one now. I have one. They can't take it away. They can't take it away. You know, unless it turns out. (laughs) No, I didn't plagiarize. They can't take it. I cited the shit out of my dissertation. They can't take it away. (laughs) What if it turns out you didn't finish a high school math class and you have to go back and do it before you can have your PhD? That is actually a nightmare. It's a recurring nightmare of mine. But it's usually a university class where I'm like, what was I thinking enrolling in third year calculus? Like, why would I think I should do that? What do you mean the exam is tomorrow? I forgot to <laughs> I forgot to drop the class by the ad drop date. <laughs> this is a recurring nightmare of like every academic I know. It's like at some point somebody's going to like come to your office and say, oh, so sorry. You actually... Um, we're going to take your PhD away unless you finish this first year statistics course. And the exam is right now and you haven't studied. Go. <laughs> 
Isn't it amazing? Dreams are so cruel. (laughs) They really are. They're very mean. What are you excited to let go of from 2020, Hannah? I am going to keep working on letting go of my desire to be in control of everything. It does not serve me. (laughs) It is particularly not serving me in the midst of this pandemic when things are chaotic and hard and everyone is struggling and the harder I try to cling on to fantasies of control the more stressed out I get (laughs) and every time I realize that I am out of control and ask somebody for help things get better Mm -hmm. it gets Mm -hmm. easier it gets more possible to do the things that I want to do so Just going to keep letting go of that, you know, that (laughs) that clenched fist of control. You know what we shouldn't let go of, though? What? A really exciting Patreon. How is that for a segue? (laughs) What a good segue, Hannah. I'm I'm wow. I am in awe. Uh, We figured we're starting on the second book now. It is a good time to remind everybody that we have a Patreon Mm -hmm. and that that Patreon is what is helping us move towards making this project sustainable and making sure that everybody who is working on this is getting paid a fair wage for their labor. Not only the upfront labor you see, that is Marcel and me, but also all of the various (laughs) forms of important behind the scenes labor that you don't see, but it's there. It's so much. It's there watching us right now, laughing at us. <laughs> In addition to being a great way of supporting the work of the podcast, the Patreon obviously has all kinds of cool, exciting bonus content. Mm. For example, up right now, there is an interview with Not Sorry Productions' very own Vanessa Zoltan, which is basically just like us fangirling pretty hard with <laughs> Vanessa and then Vanessa kind of fangirling pretty hard back at us. It was so, wild. <laughs> I think that's extremely charming. But also what I think is our best, which please tell me yet, where we both identify our Patronuses, demons and familiars mm-hmm. and they're different mm-hmm. animals, mm-hmm. all three. And if you really can't get enough of us, we also do bi-monthly movie watch-alongs, which are essentially just like an hour and a half of non-stop chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Unhinged nonsense. In which you can participate yourself, either via textual contributions or with your words in your mouth. Yeah, you can just you can just unmute yourself and jump right in. We do those on Discord. The first one was the last unicorn and the next one which we're doing in December is going to be the Muppet Christmas Carol. <gasps> <laughs> Thank you for those real life Muppet arms. Always. It's the end of the calendar year and the end of the semester, at least for university students across Canada, and it doesn't matter how many pandemics or monsters or drawn-out elections we face because no one is cancelling exams for a school treat. It's time for revision. Now that we're finished with Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, we're moving on to the Chamber of Secrets and a whole new set of hijinks. 
and a whole new spectrum of problematic content to discuss. Wow, there are some problems in this book. <laughs> That's right. We're going to approach this book with a whole new set of theoretical lenses. And starting with today, feminist literary criticism. Today, dear listeners, we're diving into feminist theory, and we'll be talking about the experiences of characters that this text presents as women and girls. But when we talk about women and girls, we want to make very clear that we at Which Please have an expansive definition of what that means, and we're working in our own vocabulary to find ways of talking about feminist issues without automatically centering cis women. Trans women are women. People of marginalized genders across a variety of experiences may resonate with characters presented in this text as women and girls, and we support these readings. We have heard back from some of you really helpful suggestions for the way that we can keep working on how we talk about gender, and we are always open to that feedback. So keep listening and keep generously giving us opportunities to get better at having these really important conversations. So feminist theory and feminist literary criticism are huge fields, and we're really only just going to like start to flesh them out in this episode. But before we get into our favorite segment, the theory segment, <laughs> let's talk about some things in this book that seem like they might benefit from some good old feminist thinking. Great idea, Hannah. There's a few ways we can think about like looking at feminist stuff in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And one of the obvious ways to start is like, let's talk about the female characters in this book. Like, let's talk about how we encounter women and girls and what role they play. Starting with a bad mother. Yeah. And then moving to a good mother. Oh, so we get some good old fashioned Petunia Dursley mm -hmm. at the beginning, signifying all the ways in which she is a bad and failed mother because she is overfeeding one child and underfeeding another. Mm -hmm. And that those are both signs of her sort of imbalance as a nurturer. And then when Harry is saved from the truly wildly nightmarish scenario in which he is being imprisoned and is being slowly starved to death, it's so bleak. Yeah. <laughs> it gets so much worse at the beginning of this book. Like phenomenally dehumanizing. They install a cat door in Harry's bedroom door. To feed him through. Well, yeah. I forgot actually before we started reading this book, I forgot that they literally imprison him and literally starve him. So we've got this terrible mother, right? Her terribleness is indicated by her relationship to the sort of manifestation of her nurturing role, which is food. So like, what do mothers do? Mothers give children food. And if they're bad mothers, they give children too little or too much food. But if they're good mothers, they give children exactly the correct amount of food, <laughs> which is exactly what we see from Mrs. Weasley. As soon as he relocates to the burrow, there's still so much fixation on how much food everybody's getting and how often they're being fed and the quality of that food and the nourishing nature of that food. But now it's like it's correct. Mm -hmm. Like she makes sure that at every meal, all of these hungry, growing boys get lots and lots to eat, but not too much. No. And the only reason we know that it's not too much is because there's no fat shaming of the Weasley children. Precisely. Unlike what we see with Dudley. The fucking 
fucking opening pages of this book that make sure to put the word fat in front of every body part. Dudley reached out his fat hand and then he touched his fat face and then he put, pulled his pants up over his fat bottom. And it's just like, hey, hey, Joanne, we get it. We get it. He's fat. And it's incredible because before the Weasleys and the Weasley children and Harry go to Diagon Alley, they eat half a dozen bacon sandwiches each. Like, I'm sorry, six sandwiches times the number of people in the household. Like that one, that is a colossal amount of food. That's so much food. But also like are six bacon sandwiches somehow healthier than whatever it is that Petunia is feeding Dudley. (laughs) This is why for me, this is sort of available to a feminist reading is that Mm -hmm. what matters is not the actual quantity of food, right? Like Mm -hmm. we, you know, for those of us who have been around teenage boys, they will put away a truly astonishing quantity of food. (laughs) And she is raising a household of teenage boys. Like her Mm -hmm. grocery bill must just be astronomical. But the point isn't like, are you eating too much or too little? Mm -hmm. The point is, are you being fed by a good mother? Yeah. Like she's a good mother, but she's also a nag because all of the adult women in this book are nags. We've got nagging mothers. We've got nagging teachers. And nagging hospital matrons. And nagging hospital matrons. Adult women in this book just wag their fingers at people near constantly. And then we've got... Girls Mm -hmm. and girls are either completely silent, like Ginny, who does not speak for almost the entirety of the book, or they are shrill, like Hermione often is, or like Moni Myrtle is constantly, or they are unconscious, or they are dead, or they are some combination of those things. But this book is constantly just like, this girl, mm, she doesn't talk. This girl, she's ugly. This girl likes boys, so she's very silly. Can you Mm -hmm. imagine a girl who thinks a boy is attractive? How humiliating for her. This girl, dead. But we will make a point that even though she's dead, she's still shrill and ugly. And annoying. (laughs) And annoying. If we are just starting at this baseline of reading women characters... There is not a redeeming representation in the lot. There really isn't. Like Hermione, who is usually sort of our touchstone of like a woman who gets to be complex and interesting or a girl who gets to be complex and interesting, is mocked throughout the book for having a crush on Lockhart. Mm. She is written out of major scenes, right? She accidentally turns into a cat and then she's in the hospital wing for a month. A month! Nobody notices. And then she's, uh, what's the, what's the word? What happens to everybody? Snakeified. Petrified. Petrified. Snakeified. Snakeified. Yeah. And then she's petrified and she's written out again. So she's written out of the climax as well. And then, you know, the other girls who are significant characters really are Ginny and Moni Myrtle. And Ginny literally doesn't get a lot of dialogue, right? She's just described. It's like, these constant asides that were like, Ginny looked extremely upset and was crying. And then everybody just moves on. I don't know. I think there's something sort of interesting there. If we think back to our ongoing argument that Harry is a unreliable narrator, that the sort Mm -hmm. of elimination of Ginny's actual experiences, actual voice, any actual insight into what's happening to her is a function of how Harry is not actually paying attention to her and doesn't actually Mm -hmm. care. 
Mm-hmm. But the function is that we have this character, you know, who turns out to be very, very central to the plot, <laughs> but who is just systematically erased. And then we've got Moni Myrtle, who is just a um, a real exercise in misogyny. <laughs> Boy, she's treated badly. Mm-hmm. This poor girl who is tragically killed while at school. And everybody's just like, oh, she's so annoying, though. All traumatized (laughs) by her horrible early death. And the only reason she's a ghost is because she wanted to come back to haunt the person who was making fun of her in the first place. Well, you know what? We've all wanted to haunt the people who make fun of us. All of us. And if I die, I'm going to do that. No, I don't know. I probably won't. I really enjoyed the phrase, if I die. Keeping it conditional because I could turn out to be immortal. I mean, who knows? So in addition to looking at the representation of female characters, we could also ask questions about the narrative, right? Not just how are women described, but also like what role do they play in the plot? Mm -hmm. So we can, you know, not just looking at how frequently they're described as being ugly. Millicent Bolstrode. Oh, yeah. That poor girl who dares to, like, have a jawline. And the book's just like, oh, she was disgusting to look at. Hated it. Like, the only substantive information that we have about her is that she's bigger than Harry. Which, like, I'm sorry, Harry's 12. Is he, like, (laughs) is he a particularly big 12-year-old? Because, you know, a lot of 12-year-olds are pretty small. So it wouldn't actually be hard to be a bigger than a 12-year-old boy. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Being big is bad across the board unless you're Hagrid. Mm -hmm. So in addition to talking about how the characters are represented, we can also talk about the role that they play in the narrative. That's another kind of, you know, feminist lens. So like we talked in the first episode of our discussion of the Philosopher's Stone about this being a hero narrative and like everything is oriented around Harry as this sort of chosen one figure. So like where are the women in that context? And in that context, we can see that like none of the women are agents or actors in this story. They are all set dressing. They are all plot devices. They are all either a clue Harry can find or a treasure Harry has to go for. You know, they have to be rescued by him or he has to escape them. But like women are just like things that Harry navigates, whereas he is the agent (laughs) and the actor. And I remember having ages ago a conversation with a, a roommate And this particular young man was asking me why it was a problem that the protagonists in video games were always men. He was like, yeah, like I see that that's a pattern. I see that it's always men, but like, who cares? Like, why does that make a difference? And I was like, oh, what if I just pull a Petunia Dursley and hit you with this pan? No, no, not not good (laughs) pedagogy. Let's try, let's try a different approach. When you think that men are the only people who are the main characters in their story and women are set dressing that they can move through. You justify and excuse in real life the violence that men do to women. Our ongoing narrative construction of the world as a series of male protagonists with a series of women who are like just kind of there is directly linked to the way that we do things culturally, like excuse 
horrifying acts of assault and violence against women in the interest of the sort of ongoing well-being of men. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously like, you know, I'm pulling out as I'm just thinking these things through in the book, like I'm pulling out gender, but like you're going to get to this in the next segment. But we absolutely cannot talk about gender without also talking about race, without also talking about class, without also talking about disability. Like these things are wildly indivisible from each other at all times. You can never really meaningfully isolate these categories. But like it matters who we think of as the protagonists in the story and who we think of as set dressing because it actually plays out in like whose lives we value. Amazing, isn't it? If you are always able to identify with the person who is the protagonist, you will never notice that you are left out. It's <laughs> so like... Yeah, I mean, you can train yourself to notice, right? Mm -hmm. You can train yourself to be a reader who pays attention to the treatment of characters who don't share your identity. I think that's part Mm -hmm. of the process of becoming a better reader is not just seamlessly slipping into a text and like figuring out like, oh, here's a place for me in it. And this world Mm -hmm. has lots of space for me. And so here I go. We on a textual, uncritical textual journey. You can learn to attend to these things. So that's like on this reread, coming back to this book for the first time in a while, like these are the things that really stood out to me. The way the women are described and the way that the women play particular roles in the plot. You know, the other thing is I was like, okay, you know, what are the various layers of feminist reading that one might bring? I was like, we can also start to look at some of the tropes that pop up and how sort of ideologies of gendered behavior express themselves in tropes. So this is like going back to our discussion of tropes and ideology. When we talked about the first book, you know, those are still tools that we can bring in here and we can ask questions like, why are bad characters always ugly, right? What is the ideology underpinning that? What are the assumptions about appropriate performance of one's gender Mm -hmm. that then play into if you have failed to perform your gender correctly, in some way that becomes a sign of villainy. So if you are a woman and you're ugly, you're probably bad. If you are a man and you are interested in your appearance, Mm -hmm. that's probably bad, right? We know that Lockhart can't be trusted because he curls his hair and wears colorful robes. Like there is something suspicious going on there. Let alone the overwhelming ideological force in this book that tells us that there are two genders and everybody fits neatly into them, Mm -hmm. which when you start to really pay attention to the, like there's this one scene that I was like, Oh, this is baffling, which is when Harry first meets Dobby Mm -hmm. and he is calling Dobby it because he doesn't know what Dobby is. Mm -hmm. And then Dobby says, you know, my name is Dobby and I'm a house elf. And Harry immediately switches to calling Dobby he. Mm -hmm. You didn't know what a house elf was (laughs) two seconds ago, but you already know how to interpolate house elves into your gender binary? Yes. How? (laughs) How could you possibly do that? That doesn't make any sense. You know, right from the get-go, 
guessing somebody's gender based on looking at them and just assuming that you're like psychic is <laughs> never a good bet. But assuming that you know how to interpret the gender of someone who you were calling it a second ago is an extra bad move. But it's just a sign of like the force mm -hmm. with which these assumptions about gendered behavior structure this text. Mm -hmm. That's part of feminist thinking for me when I mm -hmm. come into a text and I'm like, okay, what's going on here? What's going on here as a feminist? I'm also like, hmm, what's going on here with gender? What's going on here with <laughs> ideologies of gender? How are those being expressed to us in often very sort of quiet ways? So this is my like fresh reread with a pair of feminist glasses on. Mm -hmm. This is what I saw. And what I would really like us to do now is actually learn some feminist theory. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Exams are hard. <laughs> I thought feminism was just an excuse to complain about literally everything I don't like. <laughs> Jokes on you, Hannah, because feminism means complaining about everything you do like. <laughs> Let's see how in transfiguration class. This is the funniest description of feminism I've ever heard. <laughs> feminism means you're not allowed to like anything anymore. <laughs> I like it so much. Yes. Okay. We are obviously just joking. Feminist theory and by extension, feminist literary criticism are extremely broad frameworks that like a lot of other kinds of theory we've talked about, like trauma theory and Marxism and critical animal studies. Feminist theory gives us tools that help us to see a text in new and exciting ways and hopefully to develop a keener insight into the way the real world operates. What we find when we use any theoretical lens to put pressure on dominant worldviews is that these worldviews are pretty narrow. Um, so narrow. <laughs> the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy has been very effective at naturalizing white supremacy, class, the sex and gender binaries, heterosexual monogamy, and capitalism. Any deviations from that which reproduces capitalism is made to seem unnatural. Oh, I love how quickly when we talk about feminist theory, we have to start bringing in these other lenses. We divide them for the sake of this podcast, but like you really can't like they're all they're always talking to each other. Mm -hmm. So feminist literary criticism in a nutshell is a way of reading and responding to textual representations of gender, of sexuality and of power. And it's really crucial to keep in mind that this theoretical lens is 
a huge field with a lot of competing and complementary branches. That competing piece is important to keep in mind. Some texts that we might consider to be foundational to feminist criticism might still reproduce cis-centric, heterocentric, and ableist worldviews. It's a complicated field with a lot of contested figures in it. Mm -hmm. But to quote Black lesbian feminist Audre Lorde, quote, the absence of the consideration of race, sexuality, class, and age weakens any feminist discussion of the personal and the political, end quote. That's so true. So for folks who are new to the idea of thinking about feminism as a theoretical framework and thinking about feminist literary criticism, at its core, really what this should do is provide us with the language and the critical tools to talk about, one, how texts reproduce oppressive systems of power, two, how oppressive systems of power shape our relationships to texts, three, how oppressive systems of power control which texts get published, circulated, and indeed celebrated, and not least, who has access to texts at all. Oh, I yeah. love this. I love how it starts small and gets big. Oh, it's, it's like, so let's talk about how women are represented in this book. And like, at some point, let's talk about like the carceral system <laughs> and, you know, how books are kept out of prisons. Yes. Like there's so many different kinds of like sizes of frame that we can use to have this conversation. It's like feminism is a really useful tool, you know? Like to look at and understand the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Ah. I might, you know what, I might get into this whole feminism thing. It seems pretty okay. So again, we keep talking about how feminist theory, feminism, feminist literary criticism, these things are, are huge fields of inquiry and we can't get into everything in this one episode. So I want to encourage listeners to think of this segment as a kind of feminist criticism mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> which is organized around our responses to this specific book and not to be disheartened that uh, we didn't talk about everything because there will be more, dear listeners. So much more. <laughs> so so give us a couple of tracks to add to the mixtape this episode. Okay, I'll start with Audre Lorde's essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. A classic, one of Audre Lorde's greatest hits, if you will, and in my opinion, is a must read for white folks, especially who identify as feminists, because we can understand the master's tools, this term that Lorde uses, to refer to any of the tools that are used to maintain oppressive systems of power. And so in the case of literary criticism, we might think about Again, going back to Joseph Campbell's monomyth, as we discussed in our first episode, the monomyth will never give us a revolutionary understanding of what or who a hero is. So it doesn't matter who you put into that role, once they're in the role of the hero on the hero's journey, all they're going to do is reproduce those systems of power. Mm, so it is not radical using that frame to like just switch out the traditional hero with somebody who is like, quote unquote, diverse. Exactly. I love when people call individuals diverse because that's not how diversity works. <laughs> One person can't be diverse, but, you know. But they so, can if they're not like me, Hannah. <laughs> it's no. just not how diversity works. It's not. Uh, so, Marcel, a question for you. Yes. Who cares? <laughs> 
Who cares? <laughs> Who cares if the hero's journey continues to assume the heroism of white men? Oh, God. What a great question. A question for the ages. Because as Audre Lorde shows us, it isn't just white men. The interrelatedness of oppression means that the monomyth assumes the heroism of white, able-bodied, middle-class, heterosexual, cisgender men to the exclusion of anyone else, and especially people of color, black people, disabled people, poor people, queer people, trans women, and non-binary folks. Just, you know, if you're not reproducing the capitalist system, literally, if you're not literally reproducing it, you don't matter to the monomyth. Yeah, exactly. So these quote unquote master's tools, these Mm -hmm. critical frames that were produced to maintain and celebrate the status quo are complicit in the systems of power that constantly value the lives of a very tiny percentage of the number of people in the world at the direct expense and active oppression of everyone else. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's incredible. Okay. So we've got Audre Lorde and her incredibly hot evergreen hit, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Mm -hmm. Do we want to add one more track onto the mixtape this episode? Yeah. Let's add one more track. I want to think about Bell Hooks' argument that our job is not to ignore or throw these representations away, but rather to be what she calls enlightened witnesses. So in a presentation called Why Study Popular Culture, Bell Hooks writes that we need to be, quote, able to be critically vigilant about what is being told to us and how we respond to what is being told. So she calls for a, quote, proactive sense of agency that requires of all of us a greater level of literacy, end quote. Mm. Mm. I love it. I love it. So on the one hand, we've got Audre Lorde sort of helping us to think through the tools that are available to us. And then on the other hand, we've got bell hooks being like, and we have to use these tools to talk about popular culture. Like popular culture matters Mm -hmm. as part of the sort of stuff that makes up the world that we are all living in. And we need to be, I love that enlightened witnesses is a beautiful phrase. Yeah. Like, like popular culture matters because these are the stories that will either reaffirm our humanity to us or reaffirm our lack of belonging or our dehumanized experience. Whenever people are like, well, what does it matter? Why can't I just like a movie? I mean, you can. Part of the problem is that nobody, literally nobody's stopping you. (laughs) So when people are like, why can't I just enjoy things? I'm like, the whole point is that you can. You... person, hypothetical person who is complaining to me right now, are probably somebody who does get to just enjoy things and never have Mm -hmm. to watch a thing and be like, have that little voice in the back of your head that's like, this movie hates me. Yeah. This movie makes me feel bad, but everybody else likes it. Uh. (laughs) So I guess I'll just smile, smile along. So if we're bringing hooks into the conversation, does she sort of add a way of understanding, like thinking about the monomyth, for example? Yes, she absolutely does. So 
when we think about who gets to be heroic, we should keep in mind that, to again quote from Bell Hooks, quote, making us all identify with men who are violent as potentially our heroes is one of the strategies that patriarchy uses to perpetuate and reaffirm itself again and again. So who gets to be a hero and the leeway that we give to the person who gets to be a hero is exactly what allows men who are violent and the use of violence under patriarchy to continue to reaffirm its own validity, to continue to be acceptable and to be tolerated. Mm, God, I mean, the degree to which this is playing out right now, like it's playing out everywhere. It's playing out all the time because this is how the world works. Mm -hmm. But watching, you know, the U.S. election just be in this fight between what like unbelievably old white man will get to determine the future of millions of people and it's just like, well, one unbelievably old white man is like transparently, horrifyingly villainous. And so the other one, I guess, gets to be a hero because he is like less literally a Nazi. But like the constructedness of a world in which these are the choices that we are mm-hmm. offered, mm-hmm. in which these are the only two protagonists we can imagine in the story when like the actual work that is being done on the ground by like queer trans people of color, like feminist organizers, like black community organizations, like all of this actual work that's happening. But like the very idea of like who gets to be the hero. Mm -hmm. Well, one of these shitty grandpas. Yeah. And then if we think about the degree to which white women continue to rally behind these two shitty grandpas, and this is seeing the results of these masters tools in action. Again, going back to Audre Lorde's essay, where she talks about how women especially have been taught to distrust difference. She says, we've been taught either to ignore our differences or to view them as causes for separation and suspicion rather than as forces for change. And then the actual part of her essay where she in fact, says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. She says of bringing about change, that this is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. So thinking about the ways in which white women especially have been rallying behind Trump consistently, like both this election and the previous one, this is because so many of us have internalized this idea that patriarchy is the only place under which we are safe or protected. And that's because we have been granted a very, very provisional modicum of personhood under patriarchy. Yeah. Under white supremacist patriarchy. Yes. White supremacist capitalist patriarchy. (laughs) Yeah. A select number of white women are told that if we play along, we will get to benefit from some sort of trickle down privilege. Mm hmm. And a lot of white women are willing Mm -hmm. to take that deal with the devil. Yeah. And we shouldn't. No. All right. I feel full of the cleansing fury of feminist literary theory. (laughs) Let's go back and talk some more about maybe some more specific scenes in this book.
truly, the nuances and complexities of feminist theory are vast, but at the end of the day, we still have our favorite thing. Owls. Sorry, are you suggesting our favorite thing is standardized testing? What? N- no. <laughs> no, this segment is about owls. No, no, sorry. It's called owls, like O-W-L-S, like the exams in the f- in the fun fantasy books we're reading. Not like Hedwig? Okay, well, not currently, but maybe, <laughs> maybe sometimes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know this isn't no, a segment you know. about birds. <laughs> <laughs> this whole back and forth was just an elaborate plot to fill this episode with hoots. On to business. Okay, now that we've talked about the ways that feminist literary criticism can help us unpack a text, I have three itty-bitty, teeny-weeny little plot points that feminist literary criticism can animate for us. And the reason I want to raise these little itty-bitty things is because, like the macro issues that you raised in our revision segment, Hannah, these sort of micro Issues are things that feminist literary criticism also helps us to understand and think through as maybe microcosmic of the macrocosmic. Yes, I love that. I love that. I mean, this is a classic, a classic move for literary criticism is that it's really hard to talk about a whole book at the same time. So let's narrow in on a particular scene and unpack it. And what we observe in that small scene might then sort of serve as a object lesson for the larger dynamics of the text as a whole. Yes, absolutely. So the first two things that I want to talk about are things that you might read and then just totally gloss over. They're sort of throwaway instances. So the first one is the way that Arthur Weasley responds to learning that his children flew his car from the borough to Privet Drive and back in secret without permission. <laughs> this scene made me so mad. I know that this is a thing that could be absolutely glossed over. It's like mm-hmm. a single line, mm-hmm. but I read it and I was just like, oh, fuck you, Arthur Weasley. So what happens? Okay. So it's used for comedy, right? Like Molly Weasley, as you're saying, women in this book are shrill and overbearing. So Molly Weasley is furious with her kids for doing this and is like, well, just wait until your father gets home. He gets home and then she tells him what his children did. And instead of being upset or even worried or like concerned at all, he's excited. He's like, oh, really? How did it go? Was it good? Did it fly well? And then Molly, you know, gives him a stern look and he's like, oh, I mean, sorry, that was very bad of you. Yeah, it was very bad and wrong. Children. Very bad. Very bad. (laughs) Feminist literary criticism is largely reading a book and being like, okay. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, like feminist literary criticism allows us to look at this moment and be like, Molly's reaction is made to look ridiculous. It's made to look like like she was hysterical. And this was really not a big deal. And and you know what? We all agree the Dursleys were starving, Harry. It was a wonderful rescue. And as for like a bit of a bit of fun reading, oh, it was a hoot. <laughs> a hoot. But the insistence of placing women in the role of being the 
killjoys, the party poopers, the no fun police. Mm-hmm. It really sort of ties into this like boys just being boys discourse. This idea that like it was just a bit of fun. You know, they were just doing something silly and whimsical. And here's this mean mommy with her mean consequences. And if it was just if there wasn't a woman in that scene, everybody would be having fun. It's true. But none of them would be eating. But nobody would be allowed. Nobody (laughs) would be eating and nobody would have a jumper to wear. So this scene also really reminds me of yet another incredible point in Audre Lorde's essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, that only within a patriarchal structure is maternity the only social power open to women. And I think Molly Weasley is a great example of this. The only way in which she has any kind of power or authority is as a mean mommy. Is as a mean mommy. And that kind of participation in like the scripts of maternity are not required for characters like Arthur Weasley, right? Like he doesn't have to sort of cling to power through like finger wagging and sternness. He gets to just be like fun and freewheeling because he is a white man. And so nobody questions his ability to occupy a position of power. That's complicated by class in the book. Mm -hmm. We've got Arthur Weasley versus Lucius Malfoy and these sort of classed battles between them, like who's doing a better job of being a patriarch, you know, who has a greater proximity to the ideal of patriarchal behavior. But nevertheless, like the ease with which he can be like consequences, don't even worry about it. (laughs) Everybody here is a white man. Uh-huh. That's my, you can't see it because this is an audio medium, but I, um, it just did a white man face. You can just, <laughs> just fill it in, just fill it in for yourself. Okay. So that's one small example. Another itty bitty teeny weeny scene, a moment, if you will, is on page 94 <laughs> when the narrator just happens to let us know that Ginny is, and I quote, bullied, end quote, into taking Madame Pomfrey's pepper up potion by Percy. It's because she was looking a bit peaky, which I mean, maybe that's a word that means more in a British context, but like means nothing to me. It just means it's just something that you say to someone. Peaky is like tired or haggard. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So she was a bit haggard and her older brother, who is a prefect, who is the good brother (laughs) and also the one who is most often compared to Molly Weasley, literally bullies her. It says bullies. He didn't convince. He bullied her into taking medicine. So there's a number of things happening in this sort of throwaway moment, right? Where what we're learning is that children and especially girl children don't know their own bodies. They don't know what's best for them. They don't get to make decisions about their bodies. They have no control whatsoever. But also that under the guise of like medicine and health, that an older male person in your life has the authority to like regulate your health and your health care. I don't know if this reminds you of anything, Hannah, but... Women in this book are, for the most part, 
not to be trusted with their own bodies. Mm-mm. Their bodies need to be managed, handled, secured, kept safe by the men who are rightfully in control. I mean, just look at Hermione messing up the polyjuice potion, right? Can't can't trust women to have agency over their own bodies. And this is a very powerful, like it's such a tiny textual reference, but it is a powerful ongoing ideology that women are hysterical, untrustworthy, that we are irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that and that we are not particularly not to be trusted with our own bodies. Like a big piece of the reason why is that our bodies belong to patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like our bodies are here to be tools of the mm-hmm. white supremacist patriarchal capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And like one of the best jobs that white women in particular can do mm-hmm. is reproduce whiteness. Mm-hmm. Literally, literally reproduce it by making the babies. <laughs> yeah. So this is like, again, you know, like a wildly white supremacist, patriarchal, cisnormative, you know, idea of what a woman's job is. This sort of like essentialist reduction of women to our reproductive function. This is an aside, but this is part of what just blows my mind about TERFs. Mm, I'm like, mm -hmm. isn't the whole fucking point that we are fighting our reduction to our reproductive function? Like, isn't that like one of the big things that we've been fighting for is not to be treated like walking uteruses. Mm, mm-hmm. And yet you are insisting that somehow it's a radical feminist stance to be like, but aren't we? Isn't that what it really means to be a woman? And it's like, no, it doesn't. Mm. And it fucking sucks. <laughs> so stop it, please. Bless you, Hannah. <laughs> An aside, but a really good one. I'm real salty. But yeah, like it is, it's such a great example, Marcel, of the scene that you would you might while reading just sort of throw aside. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh-uh, uh-uh-uh. The production of women as untrustworthy managers of their own bodies is like pervasive and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Constant, often used for humor. Okay, give me one more. I want one more. Itty bitty scene. Okay, I lied. This one isn't itty bitty. This is like, you know, fairly central to the plot. But I think that feminist literary criticism can help us to maybe think through the real world associations, if you will, with the fact that Mrs. Norris, the cat, is the first victim of Slytherin's monster slash Tom Riddle in, you know, this this bicentennial emergence of the Chamber of Secrets. And the reason why I think that this is just worth raising is because of the mounds of studies that show that people who abuse other people predominantly started by abusing animals. And so I think that the fact that Mrs. Norris is the first victim actually like might, again, authorial intention, not something we're super interested in. But I just think the fact that that pattern also appears here in the literature, it might allow us to think about how pervasive that pattern is, that it even appears in sort of unconscious ways, even in literature. It is really, I think, a powerful narrative of white masculine violence to watch the way that Tom Riddle sort of plays out his attack on Hogwarts across this book. And that 
you know, who he selectively seeks to harm, who he considers to be more or less worthy of life, more or less worthy of violence, you know, available to violence is a real plane out of the kind of hierarchy of value that the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy has created mm-hmm. around the sort of very notion of, of human life. And so we've got, you know, at the very bottom, like this animal, mm-hmm. you know, and that again, like right away, we've got these links that we can draw between feminist theory and animal studies and all of these ways in which these things tie together. We're going to need to return to talk about things like elves. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing to unpack in this book. But like, you know, the harming of animals, of ghosts, of muggle-borns, of, you know, got that moment where Neville is sure he's next because he's, quote, basically a squib. We're going to also do an episode, I think, for this book where we talk about disability studies. But that I think squibs can really be read as a form of magical disability. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so this sense that like white men who are disabled get pushed down the hierarchy. Right. Right. Yes. You know, at the top, we've got this man who is white and well-connected and, you know, has like blood purity and power and all of these forms of traditional power And then what he is doing is trying to sort of like violently reinforce the hierarchy as he perceives it through literally culling Mm -hmm. people from the school who don't fit into the worldview he would like to have. As soon as we start to try to talk about this, we get right back to that sort of like foundational understanding that comes through in work like Audre Lorde's that is like, You cannot divide a conversation about gender from a conversation about race and class and disability Mm -hmm. and sexuality and like even an attempt to pull out a little scene and be like, hey, interesting that the cat is the first victim. Mm -hmm. There's such a tangled knot of questions that that invites us to ask. I think, too, something else that we will for sure talk about more later, but is also relevant here to this discussion, is the fact that the Wizarding World carceral system also seeks out scapegoats. The political system seeks them out. The carceral system welcomes them. And both of these are also part of the white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy. Oh, yeah. We've got to talk about the ease with which Hagrid has turned into a scapegoat and just sucked right back into a carceral system that he was like prematurely entered into because as a implicitly racialized student at Hogwarts, he was scapegoated by the like white man who everybody trusted because he was a white man. The nice white boy who's just pulling himself up by his bootstraps. Oh, so many things to unpack. The world's biggest suitcase. What if we started a podcast where we talked about these things? It sounds hard. Yeah. (laughs) We'd have to hire somebody very patient to edit it for us. (laughs) 
Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode seven of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or awitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by ACAST. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. And so you've got to review us if you want to hear me hilariously mispronounce your name. Ha ha ha. Which I, which I do. So, so <laughs> yeah, do it now. I know. Do it now, you please, do. for okay. me. For you and only for you, Hannah. No, just kidding. Only for the following people. Thank you to Magnus Folk Gustafson, Ms. Pronounce, Sarah underscore JM, Lindsay Noel 11. Could be Lindsay Noel, but there's no umlaut on the E, so I'm going to assume it's Noel. Banjo Clove, App Reviewer 9662, Camera Porn, CG. P.O. A. Chappelle 2, Bradley Dillon, Jacques King, Airwright 79, and Sarah E. Amazing. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But until then... Later, witches. Witches.